Get on out of here. All right. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is James McCauley. Uh, I've been going here for uh, several months since about the beginning of this year. And today I have an opportunity to share uh, from the Word of God with you. And since I don't know everyone here real well, um, I don't know exactly what God is doing in your life or the messages that you need to hear. So today, uh, I'm going to share with you um, some things that have been um, convicting and been on my heart, and uh, hopefully they apply to some of you as well. So um, as we get started, there are a few reminders that I would like us to think about, and the first one is that I'm not up here preaching today because I'm good, but because God's good. A lot of times we... um, can look at somebody who's up on a stage and think, you know, they did something great to get there. No, I didn't do anything. Uh, I'm a miserable sinner just like everybody else. Um, the second thing that I would like us to think about is that I don't preach today because I have life figured out. Um, I preach today because um, I have the Word of God here in my hand. Uh, The third reminder that I would like us to think about is that if we're convicted today um, of our sin, that we're not convicted by, you're not convicted by me, but by the Holy Spirit. And so there's a separation between God and God talking through his word and through other people. So let's have a prayer as we begin today. Father in heaven, I thank you for giving us the opportunity to gather here this morning. I thank you for giving us your word and um, preserving it for years and years and the care that you've taken to do that because it is powerful and it has changed history and it has changed our lives and it will change eternity for people. pray that we can come before you today with humility and willing to learn and to look at some of our own faults if we have them and to uh, draw closer to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes today, um, I have titled this sermon, Are You Immersed? Might seem like kind of a strange, strange title, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, Before I get into that, I would like to share something that makes me sad. The church in America seems to be on a decline. If you go and visit churches around, uh, you'll mostly find a lot of shrinking congregations. If you look at the statistics of how many churches close per year, even just in the state of Oregon, um, churches are shriveling up and closing their doors. And that should be a sad thing to us because um, we're losing ground in this country. Um, Of course, there are a few congregations around. Some congregations are doing good, 
but the general trend is that the church in America is shrinking. Now, if you think about that, that that shouldn't be happening. That doesn't make sense why, why that would work, because, you know, you have a set number of believers, and the believers have kids, and so in 30, 40 years, our churches should be doubling instead of being cut in half and cut in half and cut in half. So we are losing more people in our churches than what we're gaining. And this is a personal issue for many of us. It's not just an obscure crowd out someplace back east or something. I think most of us probably have family, close friends, um, people that we're close to that have left the church. And I know I have, and that is something that, uh, that makes me sad, and I, makes me wonder, why is this? And so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, has God changed in the last 100 years, 200 years, 2,000 years? Has God changed? Is that why his churches are shrinking? Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. So God has not changed. How about Satan? Has Satan changed? John 8.44 says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So God and Satan have not changed. How about the world? Has the world changed? John 15:19 says that the world hates us. It hated Christians 2000 years ago. Ephesians 6:12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world. So 2,000 years ago, Christians were dealing with a world that hated them and a world that was full of dark powers striving against them. Has our world changed that much? It kind of seems to me that it's the same. So God will always be the same. Satan will always murder and lie. And the world will always hate us and try to draw us away from Christ. So who does that leave in the equation of the shrinking church? We are pretty much the only variable left in that equation that the other things seem to be pretty much constant. So what is the problem with us? I was thinking about this question and this is the answer that I came up with, that one of the reasons, one of the problems that we have is I believe that many of us, our lives are not immersed in Christ. What do I mean by immersion? If you've been in the restoration movement long, you know that battles have been fought over the issue of baptism. We have defended the necessity of baptism we have defended the connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sins, and we have fought many other battles 
defending baptism. And if you're like me, you have personally defended it and studied on this, on this uh, subject of baptism. And I believe that this has uh, caused us to restrict the word, the very word baptism, to a single event instead of a lifestyle. See, a lot of us, when we see the word baptism, we see a picture of somebody in a baptistry or in a river or someplace going underwater, and we don't think of the word as having a meaning. We think of a picture when we think of the word. And that's because the word baptism is one that was um, it's kind of a rare word in the Bible, and it was transliterated instead of translated into English. So what does that mean? That means that the Greek word, the Greek root word for baptism was bopto. And that means to immerse or to submerge something. And so the people, when they were first translating the Bible into English, the, they just took that word and they made a word that looked like it, which is what we get the word baptism or baptize. So if they would have translated it into English, it would have been immerse, because that's what the word means. A similar example to transliteration versus translation is uh, the word Willamette. Has anybody seen the word Willamette before? We have the Willamette Valley and the Willamette River and all sorts of businesses and things that are named Willamette. What does the word Willamette mean? We use it all the time and we see a picture, maybe a picture of a river, which is true, but what does the word mean? I did a little bit of research on it and found that the word Nobody really has a good understanding of what it means. There was a native tribe up north of here that had a town that was of a name similar to that, and I think it was, uh, it was pronounced Willamut, but it was north of here, and the French guys came by, and they named the whole valley after this, the town, um, they named the whole valley after the town, and somewhere along the lines, whatever the word meant got lost in history because that, the native word for a town got turned into a word for the whole valley. And some people think that Willamette means the valley of death, and they have different, all sorts of different um, interpretations of what the word meant because the translation to English from that word was lost. But fortunately, the Greek word that we have for baptism, we can go back and look and see what that means. And the word baptism means to immerse or to submerge. So that's enough history and word study for right now. But here's a question for all of us to think about. Is your life immersed in Jesus, or is it sprinkled with a little bit of Jesus on top. See, there's a lot of people who think, who look at the word baptism and think that it means to sprinkle or to pour, or they have all sorts of variations of what they think the word baptism means. The word baptism means to immerse something, to dunk something, to drown something. It was used for ships that were sunk at sea. So I'll repeat that question again. Is your life immersed in Jesus 
or does it just have a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top of everything else? Let's take a look at four things to kind of take inventory of our lives. The first thing that I would like to look at is what type of fruit we are producing. I'm going to be reading from uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. It says, and this is talking about the fruit in our lives. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree produces bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus says that we will be known by our fruits, the fruits that we produce in our lives. He says here that at the end of time, that many will say to him, Lord, Lord, don't you know us? We cast out demons and did miracles in your name. And he'll look at them and say, I never knew you. So he, people who think that they are close to Jesus may not necessarily be close to Jesus. And if you look at the fruit in our own lives, it tells us how close to Jesus we are. That's what Jesus says right here. Um, so what's the difference in between good fruit and bad fruit? God says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, 2 Corinthians 12.20 adds gossip and arrogance to the list. Romans 1.29 adds lying, murder, greed, disobedience to parents, and several more. Romans finishes this list by saying that these people deserve death. Do we realize the seriousness of sin? That these sins are all clumped together and then finished with the phrase, these people deserve death. Do we understand that drunks, homosexuals, idolaters, gossips, and people who go around stirring up trouble are all on the same plane? That a lot of times we like to pick out, pick out our favorite little sin and pull it out into our lives, and we can condemn everyone else who practices things in this list, but 
maybe we pull one of those in and we pull it out of that list and we forget that it's in the list. Um, I was convicted of this, one of these things, uh, a while back, I was talking to a man who wasn't a Christian and, you know, just in normal conversation, um, I did, like I often do, started complaining. And I started complaining about some, I'd gone somewhere with some people that I didn't really get along with all that great, and I was complaining about them. And this man who's not a Christian looks at me and he says, you know what your problem is, don't you? I said, no, what's my problem? And he said, your problem is you don't drink. He said, if you drink, then you'd forget what these guys did to you. (laughs) And, you know, it's kind kind of a funny thing, but it was also a slap on the face that this guy's telling me, that I should drink like him because then I wouldn't have trouble gossiping. But when you have somebody who's not a Christian point out something like that, that I have a problem with gossip and slandering people. You know, here I was talking to somebody that I didn't even know that well, who wasn't even a Christian, and I was gossiping and slandering about some friends of mine. And that was kind of a kind of a little bit of a slap in the face because my issue with gossip is on the same plane as somebody who's a murderer. That's what God says. That my issue with gossip and talking about people behind their backs, saying negative things about them, is on the same plane as someone who's a drunk. But I like to take my little gossip out of that list and put it over here and then I can go and condemn people, other people who are in this list but I often forget that I'm in that list too James chapter 1 verse 26 says that a person who cannot control, a person who thinks he is religious and can't control his own tongue his religion is worthless Another fruit, uh, bad fruit that was mentioned in this list was unforgiveness. In Matthew chapter 6, 15, God says that if we don't forgive people on earth, God will not forgive us of our sins. That's a tough one to deal with, that we don't like to forgive people sometimes, that people do nasty, horrible things to us, and we don't always like to forgive them. We like to go talk about them behind their back and um, harbor grudges against people. But unforgiveness is in the same list as all these other things. And God says that if we do not forgive people, he won't forgive us of our sins. So do you think that these, that these sins ever play into the decline of the church in America today, that list of things that I read off. Many people are not turned off from the church by Christ, but they are turned off by unrepentant sinners who claim to follow Christ. I was reading someplace the other day on the internet and said that gossip is the natural, um, natural language or the first language of the church. And I thought, that's sad when outsiders look at the church and say, oh yeah, I know them, they, they speak gossip fluently. That do we realize that what we say about others 
is a serious, serious thing. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. How many people leave the church today, do you think, because Christians are so patient? Or how many people do you think leave the church because they say, oh, those guys are too good. They are too nice to me. They give me way more than I deserve. How many people do you think leave the church because they say, those people are so peaceful. They're too peaceful. I like a good argument, and those Christians never have any. So, is your life immersed with the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Something to think about. Looking at our fruits, the fruits that we produce in our lives, reveals our true nature. And sometimes it isn't that great. The second thing that I would like to look at this morning to help us look at ourselves is our fears. Our fears are another thing that reveal our true nature. What do we fear? Are you afraid for your health? Are you afraid for your life? Are you afraid of the government? It amazes me how much fear has changed our lives in the last two years. People have given up seeing family out of fear. Um, they have given up fellowship with fellow believers in fear. Others have given up vacation, sports, and entertainment in fear for their health. And still others have given up jobs in fear of losing medical freedom. Others have quit coming to church because of a fear of masks. Many other major life changes have been made out of fear in current circumstances. Are all those things wrong? The decisions that people make? Probably not. But they do, they do reveal the priorities in our life, what we fear. Jesus says in John chapter 12, Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He says in Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body and are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very head of your hair the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear, for you are of more value than sparrows. Do you fear the world more than you fear the God who created the universe and has the power to send people to hell for eternity? Those should be rattling questions for us. Hopefully, they help us prioritize our fears. We have looked now at our fruits and our fears. Let's look at another thing in our lives, and that is our values. What do you value in life? Do you value money? 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing after it, 
have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Likewise, Jesus says in Matthew, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither, where neither rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. No one can serve two masters, for he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Do we ever have a money problem in the church? Not necessarily in this church, maybe. Do you think that there's ever money problems in church that turn people away from, away from Christ? You would like to say no, but I've seen some pretty uh, ugly things in the church. I've seen parents who are supposedly good Christians um, telling their kids, their kids want to go into the ministry, and they tell their kids, no, you can't go into the ministry because you can't make any money. I've seen that several different times of people telling their kids to don't go serve Jesus and preach or be a missionary. Go to college, be a lawyer or something, because you can make money. And these are good Christian people, leaders in the church, that are telling their kids this. One guy was even a preacher that told his son that. That should shake us a little bit, that the fear of money has crept into the church. I wonder if this mentality has anything to do with people leaving the church. I do not think that God is real concerned about our wealth and our comfort and our security because he promises over and over again in the New Testament that we'll be persecuted and our lives will be miserable for his case. So if this is the case, we need to look at our lives and see if our lives are immersed in comforts and possessions that will burn at the end of time or is our life immersed in Jesus, who stands forever? This seems like an easy question to answer. The Sunday school answer should be, Jesus! But when we look at our lives, um, sometimes our lives tell a different story. So far we've looked at fruits, the fruits that our lives produce, and the fears in our lives, and we've looked at our values. So the last thing I want to look at today is our speech. Um, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Our mouths will betray the feelings of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds. What does your mouth reveal about your heart? It's crazy how much COVID has changed our conversations. We've allowed a virus to change our conversations more in the last couple years than we've allowed Jesus to. Have you talked to more people about Jesus this year or about COVID? Do you talk to your kids, your grandkids, your aunts, your uncles? When you talk to them, do you talk about COVID or do you talk about Jesus? Jesus. 
it's become a normal thing for people to ask complete strangers very personal questions about their health. Uh, people who are against vaccines go around asking people if they want their reproduction systems ruined or if they want chips put in their bodies. People who are for the vaccination go around asking people about their vaccination status and why they want old people to die and try to guilt people into thinking that they're the problem. These are all things that I've witnessed, even from complete strangers. Now, we have a free country, and people can say anything they want, so that's not the problem, what people tell us. We have a problem, however, if we're willing to ask someone about their vaccination status, but won't ask them about their salvation status. We have a problem when we are willing to encourage someone to get vaccinated, but we're not willing to see if someone will be immersed. We have a problem when we are willing to discourage the vaccination, but will not discourage sin in someone's life. 1 John 4, 2 through 3 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Also, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus does not say to go make Republicans or to go make Democrats. He says, go make disciples. Jesus does not say, go and vaccinate people or go talk people out of being vaccinated. He says, go and immerse people and teach them what I have commanded you. Now, this is just one example of our speech that I thought most of us could relate to. We talk about many more things in our lives. We talk about stuff every day, all day long. We talk about stuff. What do they disclose about our hearts? This includes our text messages, our posts on social media, how we respond to stuff. What is our mouth? What do we communicate with others about the content of our hearts? If our lives are immersed in Jesus, our conversations will be immersed with him too. If our conversations are not immersed in Jesus, our lives are not immersed in Jesus. We've looked now at our fruits and our fears and our values and our speech and how they have exposed areas of weakness in our life. I know that studying for this sermon that I was convicted of the things I was studying, convicted of sin. Uh, these are some hard, hard verses, and Jesus put them in the Bible for us to read. Some of them um, if my comfort was the only thing that I would like, it would make me feel more comfortable if they were gone. But Jesus put them in here and preserved them for 2,000 years for us to read today. And I think that they're still applicable. So what do we do if we have been convicted by the Holy Spirit today? Maybe we've taken inventory of our lives, and maybe we have some fruits 
Maybe we got some rotten fruits on our trees. What do we do? Maybe we've looked at our fears and noticed that our fears, our priority in fear is a little out of whack. Maybe we've looked at our values and discovered that maybe we don't value Jesus as much as we should. Maybe we value money too much. And we've looked at our speech and seen what does our speech reveal about our lives. Maybe sometimes our speech reveals stuff about us that we don't even know. So what do we do if we have been convicted today by the Holy Spirit? The answer is the same as it has been since Adam and Eve. Since Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, David, all throughout Israel, the New Testament, when John came, he preached, Jesus preached, the apostles preached, everyone preached repentance. We're supposed to repent and turn away from sin and draw near to God. God says in his word to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And in another place, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If we are near to God, we will draw people to him. If we are far from God and yet claim to follow him, we will drive people away from him. So in conclusion today, I don't think that God created hell to scare us into following him. That's not the idea. In some of these verses, it says that that's where sinners go. I don't think that God created hell to scare us into following him. You see, hell is a place of separation and punishment from God. And if we want to be separated from God on this earth, that's where we'll spend eternity. But if we want to be close to God on this earth, then we'll be close to God in eternity. When we look at the idea of heaven and hell, heaven, or the earth, as good as it is, tongue's all tied up. Um, The earth, as good as it is, is as close to heaven, or as close to hell, as we will ever be, if we're Christians. And the earth, as bad as it is, is as close to heaven as sinners will ever be to God. That this world, with all of its corruption, is the nicest place that people who don't follow Jesus will be. You know, when you read God's word, it talks about immersion, it talks about baptism, they're the same thing. Um, And I don't think that God created baptism as a get-out-of-hell-free card. That a lot of times we think of that as, well, if somebody just gets baptized and then they can go on and live their lives. When we think about baptism as being immersed in Jesus... When we take a step to follow him and are immersed, that is something that changes our lives. When we're baptized, it says that we die to ourselves, that we take up our cross daily. It's not you get baptized and go live life however you want. When we are baptized, we're born again to a new life. We're born again for the rest of our life. 
When we are immersed in Christ, it's not only our bodies that are immersed, but the rest of our life. So we need to make sure many of us have been immersed, and Jesus commands us to do that. He says, be immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But look at our lives and see, are we living our lives following that example? Are we taking up our cross daily? When we're baptized, it says we're buried with Christ and raised to walk in a new life. We die to the old self. Do we take up our crosses and die to our old self every day? Because it's something that we have to do. Our human nature fights back every day. We don't leave the world when we're baptized. We enter a new life. Calvin said something that I liked in a recent sermon. He said something to the effect of, the Holy Spirit is not interested in a ceasefire, but unconditional surrender. That Jesus and the Holy Spirit want complete control of our lives. So today, as we conclude, um, hopefully we have several things to think about. If you have never been baptized, never been immersed into Christ, um, come talk to one of the elders, that that is something that Jesus commands us to do. If we believe in Jesus, we need to be immersed. And if we have been baptized, maybe our lives don't look like they should. Maybe our lives still don't look like Jesus. What do we need to do then? We need to repent and turn to Jesus because he has forgiveness and he died for our sins, and we need to remember that. But we need to keep pressing on and working on uh, becoming more like him.